Welcome to your January 5th edition of Cascadian Views, your first one of the new year. We have the full crew with us, uh, JJ, Dan, and Chris. Everybody is done with their holiday travels. How's it going, guys? Happy fucking new year. Do it all right. Yeah. You guys are about to hear a long discussion about Seattle traffic. I'll probably place it in right here. Um, Dan stays on message at all times, Brock. <laughs> it's important. It's about consistency. <laughs> JJ, I read uh, something big was going on up uh, in Seattle with the viaduct being closing down. Is that, like, true? Uh, I mean, they closed the viaduct, yeah. Okay. Did they finish the tunnel first? I thought that was kind of like step one was finish the tunnel and then they closed the viaduct. I believe that that was supposed to be step one. Um, I would have to check because as, <laughs> as a non-motorist, this is a non-issue for me. Oh, it's just like... Oh, this is fucking Seattleites problems, not the rest of us Seattleites that, you know. Right. I, I mean, I've seen the viaduct when I went to the aquarium. <laughs> so, like, that's my relationship with the viaduct, just to be totally above board and genuine. Um, so, again, I'll have to look this up and be sure, but my loose recollection of events was that what Dan, what you said was supposed to be the plan, um, but that the viaduct was such total shite that uh, they had to close it down anyway. Because, <laughs> I mean, from what I recall, it was cracking like before I moved here. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, was it's... part of why this whole like 15 year long Big Bertha, Big right. Dick Energy drill for like 15 years has been like such a thing here or whatever but uh yeah it's just it's terrible like yeah. it's a huge safety hazard pete davidson is fucking his way under seattle just <clears throat> uh so i yeah. i just did a little bit of research it doesn't actually happen for another week um, okay, for another week. Okay. The very I know first I had read steps. about that really recently. Yeah. So the very first steps actually happened. Early recently, but yeah. The first steps actually happened on Friday when they closed two of the on-ramps to it, but the full thing does not uh, close down until January 11th. Wow. To, I'm sure, the utter dismay of 100,000 motorists. Yeah, yeah, like uh, mm -hmm. if you ride the train, it probably won't matter, but the bus service is going to no, be not in Seattle. I mean, yeah, right around that area, the buses are fucked anyway. Like just going through downtown just eats like between 20 to 50 minutes, uh, even on the buses. And I mean, they even have like some of the underground tunnels in the main section of downtown where a lot of the buses go through but anything that goes above ground yeah just gets destroyed and that's only gonna get worse now i i read the, a the i5 ramps out of downtown are just gonna be miserable now because there's not gonna be that extra arterial diversion from the I was going to say, do you, does your guys' surface streets like have the capacity for, for all those people or no longer going to be able to get through there? Uh, my bet is no, because <laughs> I believe from what I have read, they don't have the capacity for the traffic they get now. Um, oh, God. And Big Bertha and the whole tunnel nonsense was was devised, you know, at an earlier, more baby step-minded kind of time um, where they just kind of wanted to replace. I think that they, they weren't estimating uh, a traffic surge to continue or, or to, you know, to continue to grow at a normal pace, even though, as I mean, as we have reported on the show, uh, at least you know, single occupancy vehicles are going down. Yeah, marginal in the city, but I mean that's that's a drop in a big bucket. But I think that the tunnel was not going to increase our overall capacity too much because again, the city, at least in some wisdom, has been trying to do what a lot of other cities have been trying to do and make more space for public transportation since that's just uh, a much more efficient way to get, but particularly through a downtown. 
I, uh, I read a really interesting Twitter thread about how um, New York and L.A. as two like core examples are just so diametrically opposed visions of American urbanism. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, when you have New York City, which is, you know, a much older city, to be fair, than really any city on the West Coast, uh, they had to put in that massive infrastructure but didn't have the space to just, you know, bandage things up. And so you got those underground subways that don't really exist on the West Coast. You got those raised trains that leave surface-level streets unaffected and whatnot, uh, whereas you don't really see that out West. It's much more sprawly and just, you know, throw more space at the problem, that sort of thing. Oh, God, right? I mean, especially, yeah, having just been through Arizona for the holidays, like I was in Tucson, the smaller city of, of what, half a million people. Uh, so we, I, and I thankfully didn't have to go through Phoenix, but I just flew over it at night. But yeah, everything is just... I thought I lived in a spread out city. You know, oh, it was God. funny yeah. coming, you know, living in San Francisco for a couple of years and like, that's some pretty tight density, at least yeah. mm -hmm. by my rustic and rural country mouse opinions. But then to come here and it's like, okay, there's houses, people have lawns, this is pretty fucking spread out. And then go to Tucson, see Phoenix, you know, or LA, and it's just like, good lord. Like your answer to every problem was just like, just add half an acre to it. It'll be fine. <laughs> I got uh, stuck in Phoenix Sky Harbor on a layover once for like 14 hours. It was ridiculous. That would be a terrible city to be stuck in. It was, well, I couldn't leave the airport, but it was too hot for the planes to take off. Like, <laughs> holy shit. If the, if, if the temperature gets above like 118 or something, the asphalt gets soft enough that they, they don't consider it safe to take <laughs> off and the ground all black. Yeah, for sure. And probably to land. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm used to getting fogged in an SFO, but too yeah. hot to take off. So I, I had like a three and a half hour layover in Phoenix and it started at like nine and by 1230 or whatnot, when I was hoping to board my plane, they announced that they couldn't take off until nighttime, until the sun went down. Wow. It was ridiculous. Uh, I'm actually probably going to cut this whole discussion into the actual episode and jumble it around because we got into it and a lot of time passed. So let me just go ahead and start. And we've got some other local news, so I'm actually going to go in reverse order here and talk about the local stuff first, mostly because of the late story I added that I think is really, really exciting. Um, one of the big questions with states legalizing marijuana, the entire West Coast is legalized at this point, many other states across the nation, uh, is what happens to marijuana convictions that happened in the past under those laws. And at least in Washington, and I think you may attribute at least some of this to preparation for Jay Inslee's uh, eventual presidential run, if he decides to go for it, he is pardoning all misdemeanor marijuana convictions uh, in the past, as long as there's, I believe, nothing else of a criminal record besides the marijuana conviction. Yeah. Yeah. So like an amnesty, basically, which yeah. had been on some of, I want to say in Alaska, when we had made attempts to go with full decriminalization in the odds. I mean, that was part of some of those bills to make it happen, and they never got through. But uh, yeah, it's good that he's finally getting around to it. Yeah, we've just legalized here, and we have we have expungement, but it's, you know, it's a process. You have to go and apply for it. It's not this kind of, we'll do it for you, which I think is, right. considering how many people were swept up in the drug war over the decades, is a much more... Uh, sane and humane approach to it exactly yeah because really this has been pointed out repeatedly but if you go ahead and transition now to legalized and for-profit marijuana industry without doing something for the people whose lives were just destroyed by this process then you really haven't done the full requirements of social justice in terms of you know dealing with the you know, getting to a more sane drug policy. Yeah, then it just kind of becomes profiteering. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, sorry your lives were destroyed, but uh, now we can make money off of it, so that's it. So yeah, this is much better. I So on that note, in, in terms of the apologizing to people whose lives have been destroyed, I do have one question. What's the significance of only going back to 1998 on this? 
Is there huh. some like general law in Washington that expunges misdemeanor crimes after twenty years or something? Because that would line up. But I don't I don't understand the the cutoff. Yeah, I wondered about that as well. I wonder if it's like the statute of limitations or Well you don't need to worry about that for a pardon. Yeah, true. Yeah. That that is a good question. Possible sentence, maybe. Well, I mean, yeah, but still just getting it off somebody's record. Although I yeah. I don't know if you have to self-report a misdemeanor on like a job application or something. No, I, I don't believe we have the requirements for self-reporting uh, misdemeanors. I mean, what, what's the term? The the, the box. The box. That, right, 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 right. I do not believe that that is permitted in Washington State or at least, or is compulsory. Uh, let me check. Might as well before I go out and say that on the air what the status <laughs> is of you know, employment in Washington State. Uh, uh, let's see Dan here. Shows how out of touch he actually is with people working for a living. Yeah, I know. I well, it's been a long time since I've actually applied for a job. So uh, let's see here. Oh well, uh, that was actually only just as recently as this year that uh, Ban the Box actually came to Washington State. Is that the, uh, the full spread? Like you can't ask for a felony either, or is that a misdemeanor only? All public and private sector employers in the state of Washington are prohibited from advertising openings that exclude people with an arrest or conviction records, uh, including any question in an employment application, uh, orally or in writing. Uh, or through a criminal background check, uh, having automatic disqualifiers or categorically disqualifying an individual based on the criminal record, uh, and rejecting or disqualifying an applicant for failure to disclose a criminal record prior to initially determining the applicant is otherwise qualified for the position. Well, then that sounds like covers felonies and misdemeanors, so I don't understand right. the, the cutoff date again. Yeah, the, I don't know. as much of a point. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure on that. So I wanted to touch on this because there's been a bit of other marijuana news um, out of Oregon here. Um, we've actually grown so much weed that's made it to the legal market this year that if we consumed marijuana the same rate we did last year, we'd have to smoke for seven straight years to get rid of everything that's coming to the market. Uh, it's become such a problem that the state is actually thinking of directly challenging well, the federal right to regulate interstate commerce, and we are thinking about uh, shipping it to other states, uh, <laughs> becoming a marijuana exporter, which would put us squarely in the territory of federal law, which makes me uh, <laughs> kind of wonder what the hell is going to happen with that. Um, but it's it's something that's been, been on the news here um, for a while just because of the ridiculous... Um, price rate that we're at and you can see the effects of the overproduction now that it can escape the black market seven times seven times what we consumed last year that's ridiculous excuse me yeah it's hilarious i mean we've always known that the thing that oregon does best is grow weed and smoke weed but <laughs> yeah. i mean so part of this story is no surprise but good god y'all grew a lot of fucking weed we really did and uh, I, it's, it's strange, but I do think it speaks a little bit to what uh, opponents of marijuana legalization uh, said when they were talking about how this stuff was going to get to the black market. And, you know, I poo-pooed it with everybody else. But when we actually, like, started cracking down on that and not letting that sort of shit escape and actually doing inspections on farms and, like, tracking the shit from grow to end without letting any of it escape and this shit happens um i gotta say i'm pretty sure they were right i'm pretty sure the majority of our our legal pacros were were leaving the state before all this happened yeah i and it, it's interesting again to see like the difference in how the states have handled it because i you know that's not at all the problem here just north like if if anything, we've had the opposite problem. Um, and I think Oregon attempted to kind of circumvent some of the Washington problems by allowing, and this is just totally an armchair guess, but I'm going to guess that y'all allowed like 
more growing licenses or something. Anybody who wanted them got one. We, oh, we handed oh, that so shit yeah, out like candy. The town, oh. the town of Astoria, which has 8,000 people, has 15 pot shops in it. <laughs> yeah, it wow, does yeah. have a lot of pot shops in it. I mean, they're really nice, though. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. got good fucking pot shops. So. Yeah. yeah, no, we anybody who wanted a permit to grow or run a store, we'd let them have it, dude. Like, it was okay, like, and see, that was just obviously where the mistake was. And now, <laughs> I mean, naturally, you were going to have this sort of quote-unquote problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean... Because let's face it, like, oh, no, I have too much weed. Like, yeah, it's not a problem. <laughs> Shut up. It's not like a problem. Um, <laughs> you know, there are fucking vacuum bags, man. You make concentrates. <laughs> you make brownies. This is not a problem that people have in the real world. So, so much better. <laughs> pretend Oregon. Like, it's cute that you want to pretend that you're dysfunctional and you're having problems with all this weed that I've grown. Oh, my God. It's such a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I want to like you. <laughs> but all right, sure. <laughs> so, I do really look forward to how that case goes, though. So I mean, shit, y'all grow so much. I would love it if my prices went down as a result. <laughs> so what's going I mean, on here is that uh, Senator Prosnaski from Eugene, who's a Democrat, is reintroducing a bill that uh, he introduced a, a couple of years ago. Senate Bill 1042. Um, this is a bill that's backed by the Craft Cannabis Alliance, which is a uh, pretty much exactly what you can expect from the name. It's a very Portland-esque thing to have, um, but it's small cannabis growers and distillers and, and whatnot uh, who have banded together to form a lobbying organization. And they're trying to uh, turn Oregon into kind of like the, the Silicon Valley for the weed industry. Uh, Silicon Valley started because the people who were doing that sort of thing were there initially, but it's become a magnet of itself. If you're going to found a tech company, you mm -hmm. go to the Bay Area or something. Oregon's trying to kind of kick that for kickstart that for for marijuana. They want to make this be something the state is known for, a talent draw, um, and it would also coincidentally save these farms that can't make a fucking dog. dude. Dispensaries hand you a gram joint just for walking in the door here. Like they're literally throwing free weed at you <laughs> just That's to get awesome. you in. Seriously, you don't even have to buy anything. God, man, I need to take the bus down to Portland. Sometime. I could go on a <laughs> you tour. Need to do this. I could go on a tour of dispensaries and come home with a sack of twenty joints and not spend a single fucking cent my entire day. What the shit? That's, they, see, that's amazing. There's so much weed grown in Oregon. You can literally just get high by walking into a store and then leaving. Yeah, yeah. They, they you, will give you. It's a fairly common like promotion around here. They will give you a joint just for walking in the door. No purchase. So, I'm kind of curious then, like. From a grower perspective, you know, if I had a farm and I was in Oregon, I feel like the easy solution here is to be growing CBD and doing, um, like I buy, there's a couple of different brands of CBD sodas I buy um, at this uh, hop shop, you know, just a little beer store right next to my house. You know, that's not covered by schedule one so far the dea certainly discussed it uh but they haven't really moved forward substantially with it yet um but there's cbd gummies that like californian companies have been selling for a good couple of years now that seems like a really easy way to get out of the the oversupply for flour and see that would make a lot of sense um and i would agree with that but what they're trying to do with this is they're they're trying to make it that you can export the flour those california companies exporting the cbd all over the country because cbd is is unregulated um but they're they're trying to get into state law um language to allow wholesalers to ship across state lines that the state has uh, i mean I, and i'm fine with that but yeah, that's yeah. that's no big deal for me like so the, particularly the, up and down the west coast like you're not even entering a state where it's yeah. a problem that, that's so, basically what they're trying to do um no and, and big deal i mentioned how they only crack down once the entire west coast has, has legalized and now that there are sets of rules in different places they they got more firm on that um, and now that 
there are those rules they're starting to explore this idea of export um i i believe the law if it's the same as the 2017 proposal um the the state has to have a relationship with the state of oregon an agreement uh between them to allow this export and then it will be you know regulated like anything else um yeah we essentially have to set up a trade deal basically yeah the three contiguous west coast states for weed exactly um and yeah. there there is a lot of a lot of momentum behind this it did not come up for a vote in 2017 but it's been touted as a, a priority for the the incoming class which is a little more democratic kate brown is really stepping up this is her her final term now he can leave it all on the floor basically this is one of the things she wants to do he sees it as a way to really entrench an industry in the state get us on the ground floor become a like i said a talent draw it creates a whole new base of income for the state uh, having that sort of industry here and it's it does answer a lot of your jobs and yeah economics questions that your state's been having for 20 30 years yeah, yeah ever since they closed down the timber industry and you know yeah rural oregon started you know fucking hurting. yeah hey the timber industry comes back man yeah. industrial hemp is legal trees. and smoking yeah. trees man it's yeah yeah it's that, a good deal it, it's yeah that seems like a fine position for oregon to put themselves in i'm i'm really hoping so um the the whole idea behind it is one i'm really for and you know i i i've lived in oregon like three times over my life for varying lengths of time from as short as six months to i've been here now for like five years but it is a, a really it's a state that grows on you a lot and i really do think that in the same way that I, I think a lot of people disparage, you know, San Francisco values as a common slur on the right. And I really question, you know, what, what does that mean? Because when I think of San Francisco, I think of innovativeness and, and compassion and problem solving and lots and well, lots and lots Tolerance of and compassion are definitely things that white Jesus does not talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's where the problem is. Like that's brown Jesus. Yeah. And so when I, I think of Oregon, I actually I, I do think certain things. I, I think of a more, you know, natural aesthetic than I do in, in San Francisco or whatnot. And uh, one thing I do in particular, even though I lived a lot of places where people really like weed. Oregon, by far, takes the cake. Like, have you guys ever read the Stuff White People Like book? I don't know. It's, it's a great book, if you haven't read it. But uh, it's a collection of essays um, written about different things white people like after a, a group of you know, young urban, I think, Toronto residents noticed that they all tended to like the same things as each other. And so they wrote a very tongue-in-cheek thing about it. But they have a chapter there in Weed and about how certain white people, and they differentiate in the book between the right kind of white people and the wrong kind of white people. And the wrong kind of white people wear trucker hats unironically, whatnot. Um, but they talk about weed and like white parents look at it as a gift to pass down to their children and like spiritual experiences and whatnot. And I think, you know, seeing a lot of what Oregon has shown me about that, that, that rings true, not in my own case. I'm, I'm not that much of a yuppie, but... <laughs> It, it, it does. They're very passionate about weed here. And the idea that we can become a national leader in an industry like this is, I think, an opportunity the state would be foolish to pass on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it fits the culture of Oregon, even to some extent the crazy desert culture of Oregon. Yeah, no, absolutely. The conservative movement in Oregon is very much of the, the libertarian variety. Uh, which I don't think makes it better than the normal, uh, you know, conservative movement. But I do think it would lend itself more to an industry like this. Um, the the senator who has proposed this uh, explicitly notes, by the way, the connection to other things Oregon has to offer in this space. Um, he notes a connection to to Las Vegas and how they built an industry around related things. You know, excess the the shows, the buffets the gambling and whatnot. Whereas Oregon is exceptionally well known for, for craft vineyards, craft beer, these small locally growing quote unquote vice products that are, you know, elements of 
what people consider a, a higher lifestyle, a more luxurious lifestyle, style, able to sell that complete package as a state, ramps up tourist revenue, that sort of thing, um, and the keeping it the small like craft style cannabis, the craft style beer, the craft style wine really keeps an emphasis on local business, which helps you know keep the the state flowing in a way that you know say a national corporation that just leeches money out and then moves it out of state doesn't they should do hike and smoke tours like have a farm and then you know the forest with some trails you know get a couple acres of forest put some trails in there have people walk through take a tour of your farm they buy some weed and then you let them walk through the trails I, I think that shows. is great. The farm tours actually already exist, and they are tourist destinations now. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, they, they do, like, summer tours to the growing fields, and then they end it with a room where you can select, like, three joints, three different strains, and, like, everybody smokes and bats up and whatnot. Yeah, they do uh, they grow, grow tours like that as a tourist thing. Oh, so they do have spots where everybody can smoke together. That's cool. So it's we're talking about that, but we haven't made the dive yet. It's a little bit touchy. Um, they do plan very soon to regulate consumption um, locations and whatnot. As it stands now, you cannot smoke in the purchasing facility, but private clubs are considered the same as a residence. So you are like you receive the joints in there, and then you like go off to the side room, which is decked out as like a smoking lounge. It counts as a private club. They have to meet ventilation standards and whatnot, and you're able to smoke in there because it's just like smoking in somebody's house, which is legal. Only with actual ventilation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like smoking in somebody's house. If that didn't suck. Well, the, the ventilation requirements are uh, for the Smoke-Free Workplace Act. Not, yeah, not necessarily which is, the patrons. I mean, entirely reasonable, though, and has never been some sort of, like, engineering impossibility. Then Alaska did this with cigarettes for ages. They, they, would, not, yeah. Yeah, they, they would not get on board the full smoking ban, so you were allowed to have a smoking section as long as it was completely separated with, like, uh, doors that blocked the air and had, like, certain ventilation requirements. Yeah, that's right. So I'm curious, is this something that the that automatically the feds will come after? So one of the very one of the very, very specific areas of the Constitution that actually lays out where Congress has power, not inferred, not constructed out of other legal arguments, not implied by other texts, but one of the places where the Constitution says federal law applies here is interstate commerce, is commerce between the states. So yes, when we start exporting marijuana, we are on a head-to-head collision, the Department of Justice. At least Jeff Sessions isn't there anymore. Yeah. Uh, unless there is eventually a federal legalization, which yeah. could come, we've got it's you know I think pretty much whoever is going to be nominated for president by the Democrats is going to be supporting that. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if we can get a threshold for that in Congress. But yeah, yeah, I mean, barring like a shocking catastrophe in Canada, yeah, which doesn't look like it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I um I don't actually know if it's still the only death, but the first death attributed to marijuana legalization happened in Colorado. I do know hmm. that, and nobody made a big deal about it. Like like a car accident? Or... No, it was a college student who got himself baked as shit to the point where he had no idea what was going on and jumped off his uh, hotel balcony. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Wasn't he drunk as well? No, I, I, no, it was just okay. It was just stoned. It was actually years ago. It was like five years ago at this point, or something oh like my. that. It was like a year after they legalized, and I remember it as like a. It, it was like a joke piece in the AP, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were pointing it out because it was kind of funny, which was a little yeah, bit like, morbid. Oh, oh, it happened! It finally, finally somebody oh, yeah. that the stoners have been talking about it happened. Yeah, I, I, I'm not being sarcastic when I, I was saying nobody made a big deal about it. Like it was a humorous piece almost. Uh, I, I think the sometimes drunk people do stupid things. Very, very occasionally, 
high people do stupid things. I would like to point out that, you know, it was rare enough it's the only case I've ever heard about. And by the way, he didn't smoke himself to an overdose. He got really stoned and did some dumb shit. Right. Like, so, I don't, I don't really think there's any disaster in Canada that could, like, yeah, change the course on this. No, I, honestly, the, the biggest issue that Canada seems to be facing is... Uh, an issue with delivery drivers and access in remote parts of Canada. <laughs> right. Canada's problem is not enough weed distribution. Exactly. Yeah, the Northwest Canada Territories, has the man. opposite uh, of Oregon's problem. They're like, well, so we have weed now, but like, fucking Nunavut's like way the hell up there, y'all. Like, it's a long ass drive and it's snowing and like, I don't want to drive 50 pounds of weed up there. Okay. <laughs> Ice road weed truckers. It's oh, exactly, that's exactly the next iteration. Okay. All right. I'm going to bounce to another local topic and then we'll go to our national one. Um, Med, uh, Ed, excuse me, Mayor Ted Wheeler um, lost his chief of staff on Friday. Michael Cox, who is a, a longtime aide to Wheeler, he was uh, actually rather effective in running. Wheeler's cabinet, such as it is, um, I say such as it is because Wheeler's been accused of not having enough staff, basically, of, of keeping too little people. That's apparently a choice on his part. Um, he, he prefers to have close people that are loyal, kind of trumpish in that way, I guess. Um, but Cox uh, had come under some fire. He had a previously undisclosed relationship with a a underling. Um, he was not technically in violation of city ethics laws because it requires you you have a, a relationship with somebody who reports to you. Cox was two layers up in the organization chart. They did not directly report to him. Um, but the, after the city attorney got wind of it and they all sat down, um, I guess the advice, the legal advice was in order to comply with the spirit of the law, uh, the spirit of the ethics law, you should disclose this. So he did. That was like two weeks ago was kind of a minor scandal here at the time. Um, he has now resigned. I would normally take this as a sign that Wheeler is leaving office. He is incredibly unhappy in office. He, he's not having a good time. He's complained about it repeatedly. Uh, we had a, something that's been called locally Muttergate, where I believe it was a Fox News camera after a uh, press conference. Caught him on microphone talking about how fucking shitty this job was. And I believe he used those exact words. Uh, what a fucking whiner. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. It's so yeah. fucking service. Like, yeah. Oh, and that he, he said he can't wait for uh, for the next 24 months to be over, which is the rest Jesus, of the Jesus, yeah, term. he's not even halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the people of Portland probably feel the same, buddy. Uh, yeah, I, I would normally think this was a sign that uh, Wheeler was going to be done after this term. Cox is going off to look for more employment because you know, it was a minor scandal. But at the end of the day, the, the city legal department said this guy didn't do anything illegal. He came clean with it when the city attorney said, you know, maybe you don't have to. But if you really want to, you should do this. Uh, he did it like I. I it's a little bit of a sleazebag move to be dating, you know, somebody underneath you in the depth chart at work. I get that. But I don't think this was a fatal wound for him. Um, so I would have assumed he was leaving just to go start a new job and not trudge through the next two years of like a one and done administration. But the scuttlebutt around town is that Wheeler is actually probably in a pretty dominant position in this race. He is raked in an insane amount of money over Christmas. Uh, one day he took in over $75,000 in just like a three-day stretch or something like that. Uh, he's reactivated a lot of the machinery around his, his first bid, a lot of the, the dormant, uh, you know, pack corporations and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a little bit foggy. Uh, I think he's running again, or at least he's actively raising money to run again. He took in, I think, $300,000 last quarter. And... 75,000 of it came over a three-day period over Christmas. So, so say maybe a congressional seat opening up or something? or I mean, maybe. Huh. But So Wheeler was the state treasurer for a while, and he was really good at it. Um, I, I don't – I actually – I supported him in the office. I, I thought somebody with more experience in statewide politics was kind of needed because Portland had a lot of problems. 
I still think Portland has a lot of problems, and I think Ted Wheeler has admirably tried on a couple things. But I do agree with the idea that the staff is just overwhelmed. He needs more people. Like, he, he does decent stuff on the stuff he's able to set his mind to. Sometimes he misfires. The protest bill was beyond stupid. Um, but he, he, I'm pleased with his policy directions on the things he engages in, for the most part. Uh, he doesn't engage on enough, and I think that's a sign of understaffing. Um, I would have thought, coming from a very sterling state record, if he had wanted to run for Congress, uh, coming off this mayoralship, if it's just a one-term uh, deal, is not going to be very conducive. Uh, this was not a pleasant term. I think it shows a lot of growing pains. I think he could be better at a second term if he recognized his failings, if he recognized what he needed to do to succeed. Because like I said, for the most part, aside from the protest bill, when he gets engaged in things, good things tend to happen. When he got engaged with the police force, they calmed down. When he got in, engaged in city politics, it got a little less venomous. He, he does good things when he sets his mind to it, but he can't walk and chew gum at the same time. He doesn't have enough people. He, he has refused to hire a, a full staff for unknown reasons. I assume what is said you know, from local reporters on Twitter is accurate, that he, he prefers a, a loyal staff and he doesn't want to put his agenda in the hands of somebody who doesn't get him, but who knows. So uh, so there's that. We lost our chief of staff. His deputy is going to be filling the role until they get a permanent. I would probably bet money that his deputy will be the permanent and they'll get a new deputy because he's known as deputy for a long time now. I believe she served with him at the state. So we'll see. But yeah, that's what's shaking in Portland politics. So let's turn it around and, and go into the national stuff, I guess. Um, and we have... Our first points in the presidential primary uh, fantasy league, Warren and Castro have both started an exploratory, exploratory committee, which I believe is worth one point each. Well, I, I think we were going for uh, not just uh, exploratory committee, but the whole you know going to Iowa flags, all that kind of stuff as the uh, I may be threshold for yeah. one point. Okay. Yeah, so Fair I'd enough. say point for Warren at this point, but I don't think Castro has gone quite to the extent that Warren has. It's a little bit subjective, but I'd say Warren is in, but Castro is kind of dipping his toes. Castro did have some heavy symbolism. Um, he announced that he was forming the Exploratory Committee, um, and I guess it's having another rally there at some point where he said he was going to have some news about him in the presidential race in the same square in El Paso that uh, Barack Obama had his Texas rallies oh. in. Well, that would be something then. Yeah. yeah. So when that comes around, yeah, I'll call that points. He's, uh, yeah, I think he's trying to don that mantle. And he served in the Obama White House, I believe, for a while, correct? He was a yeah, he was something or other. HUD, Herb Housing and Urban Development. Okay, maybe, maybe the whole thing about not knowing what Ben Carson was up to is just because I ignore HUD. <laughs> it's possible because I couldn't remember that's the office you that Castro and was at. Every other white person in America. <laughs> this is very true. Oh yeah. Uh so Warren has captured the attention of the president, who has uh ripped into her on Twitter. Also his memes have started bleeding into the real world. Did you oh. see the poster that was on the table at his meeting with the Democrats? Oh, yes. I uh, I actually posted a little bit about that in the Facebook group. Oh, yeah. did you? Oh, that that might have been where I saw it then. That stupid, yeah, Game sanctions are coming. Sanctions yeah. Are coming, yeah, which made no goddamn sense anyway. But, it's uh, really hard to believe that that's true. Yeah. I mean, it is, and, but I'm still struggling with it. <laughs> well, so bizarre. Yeah. And it's not like it was a new thing either. He'd posted that shit, you know, on social media months ago. Oh God! And, and I guess now he finally decided to have someone print up a poster for him about it. And well, and he had to make sure that the libs saw it. I mean, so <laughs> part of me that on Twitter, of course, they saw it. <laughs> there is, there is a sure. <laughs> 
It could come in handy, though, the next time that he, you know, accidentally passes on an anti-Semitic meme. Oh, right. If he actually makes posters of it and has them distributed. (laughs) Difficult to decide. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. Something with a Star of David on it or something. Oh, God. (laughs) The the civil libertarian in me knows absolutely that that poster is fair use. uh, Completely. Between... uh, the satire exemption and de minimis and just all that but the evil part of me really wishes hbo would try some sort of cease and desist i really really would love to see that if he could get into a fight with hbo for the next six months it would really take a lot of stress off my shoulders (laughs) well look forward to the next season of uh last week tonight uh as you know, John Oliver tends to go after Trump pretty often, and if HBO wants to pick a fight, probably through John Oliver would be a very convenient use. <laughs> the uh, the shutdown has expanded into its its second week now. Trump went on TV because he couldn't stand to see the news covering Pelosi for two hours um, in order to say that. He thought it should extend for months or even years in a apparently expletive-laden uh, blow-up at Democrats in this meeting, which was closed to reporters. He uh, said he preferred to call it a strike rather than a shutdown, which I don't know if he's meaning to imply that he's striking or the workers he's not paying are striking, and he assumes that will get him points in public perception. I, I don't really follow through on all that. His voters don't like strikes, so I think if he gets to call it a strike, then it's easier for him to blame the libs. I don't right. think his voters dislike strikes as much as you think they do. Uh, I think they dislike black people striking, and they dislike liberals striking, but the most Trumpian state in the country is West Virginia, which has a history of coal miner strikes. Like, going up into the 1980s. Oh, sure. But, I mean, Brock, those people don't want to remember history now. Right. I mean, they're not working now, so... I, yeah. <laughs> so I, They all died at a young age from black lung. Yeah. So they aren't around to tell the stories about how strikes were effective. The, the generational memory is a hard time. All they have is, like, yeah. Kenny Chesney albums, the whatever... Let's talk about this for a second. What makes the Trump coalition different than the normal Republican coalition? And I think there's a couple things that really stand out. And it's it's young, fairly urban people, white people. I I don't mean to imply urban as a a synonym for people of color. Young, urban, white people of of a certain age, the, the 4chan demographic, if you want to go with that. And ancestrally democratic working class communities across the Rust Belt and Appalachia and whatnot. Those are groups that may normally, you know, be vaguely Republican, but actually turned out for Trump. They're they're one of the ways that he kind of redid the electoral map in a certain way. And those are two groups that I think are actually, I know we just, you know, you, God, that sounds pretentious. I know we make mm-hmm. jokes, you know, about they don't remember history, but I do think that these people, those two groups specifically, in in a sort of like what have you done for me lately, do not oppose labor action in that sort of way. You you see this in young urban conservatives being willing to, you know, just hop off of jobs when they don't get the benefits they want at the the first touch. They do not necessarily willing to to fight for it in a class struggle type thing that you know people who work for the labor union might appreciate but they do not have that sort of disdain towards the working person deciding to to opt out of this for a better deal or whatnot i do think that's a, a problem for him i think i think that impacts things more than you might think i i don't think that strike uh language is going to do much for him in that uh, and I, I think if you had a normal Republican electorate, it would. But, uh, I, I mean, 
I don't think it actually matters much. I think we're playing at the margins here. I, I think if you like Trump or don't like Trump, you're pretty much well settled on that. Yeah, that, yeah. that's that's more true than anything, for <laughs> yeah. sure. I mean, yeah. he's, he's proven that the branding, the words, the optics don't matter with him. Yeah, it's really... Well, I think he's kind of subsumed a lot of the other issues and made himself kind of the main battleground or, you know, the litmus test for, you know, whether or not you want to be a Republican or continue with this whole project. It's how you feel about Trump personally. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, that actually kind of, oh, go ahead, Chris, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, this is where it can kind of boomerang on him, though, because there are a lot of, there's a lot of his demographic, quote unquote, who is on some form of government assistance or government support, even though right. they don't think of themselves as being those people. He's but the government out by Medicare. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they will notice <laughs> their payments aren't coming for a few months. Or if they don't get their uh, tax refund in, yeah. in the next couple of months. Yeah. Which is an issue the uh, Democratic House uh, chairman is, or chairman of which committee I might have completely forgotten that is harping on. They sent a, a letter to the um, internal revenue service, the IRS uh, asking <laughs> when they were expecting to process refunds, if they were expecting any sort of delay because they did send home 95% of the staff for the shutdown. Right. Um, and yeah, it's not as visible as, you know, national parks overflowing with poop, but uh, yeah, that's going to be a big issue very soon. We actually have a local angle on this. Uh, Portland Metro High School went on their Washington, D.C. trip. I don't know if you guys remember JDHS doing that, but a couple classes did while I was there. And they were mm -hmm. not able to get in the Smithsonian because it is closed. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, I think the National Zoo, lots of pretty much everything around D.C. would probably be closed. I subscribe to the Smithsonian Channel. Um, mm -hmm. I assume that's a private company and that they're just giving me terrible, terrible service. But I haven't been able to change my payment method since I got a new debit card last month to replace my old one. Uh, and they're not responding to my support messages that tell, you know, I don't know if they're not there or if they just have terrible support. I can't figure it out. Yeah. That was meant to be funny, but nobody laughed. Well, maybe it's... Maybe be funny not... next time? Yeah, it, may, it, it could be. We could try it again. Uh, I was just going to say... No, I was uh, saying you were telling me to actually be funny next time. No. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to be that big a dick. Uh, let's see here. Whoa, what was I going to say? Uh, now I've completely lost my train of thought. So yeah, be funnier next time. No, uh, <laughs> um, uh, shoot, uh, I guess the comparison, uh, I guess a lot of the stuff in D.C., I guess they have to shut down, but with a lot of things like parks and stuff like that, they're not closing it. They're just leaving it open. You know, in previous shutdowns, you know, the Republicans accused the Obama administration of blackmail when he did go ahead and close off access to certain facilities. But here, they're just leaving, you know, a bunch of national parks open. I think Yosemite, lots of other places, you just go. But nobody's taking out the trash. Nobody's running the bathrooms, any of that. They've had to close some of them because of that. That had been their policy. Yeah. Certain places are overflowing, overflowing with waste. In other states, uh, states have stepped in themselves. Hmm. I believe New York State is paying to keep uh, Statue of Liberty open, Ellis Island, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, coming out of their own coffers. Just probably it brings in more money as a tourist draw uh, right. than they'd be spending to keep it going. But yeah, um, the other kind of news on this is that while the Homeland Security spokesperson has denied it with a hashtag fake news, uh, I cannot believe that actual government employees are doing that, by the way. Uh, multiple news outlets have gotten confirmation on the record from uh, Transportation Security Administration that there is a uh, massive uptick in the amount of, of sick days, CNN called it a sick out, um, starting at Christmas and accelerating into this month. We may be seeing the, the first signs of some sort of, I, I guess, labor disruption for the federal yeah. workforce. Well, that's kind of been the flip side of this. In a lot of facilities, people are furloughed, and that's one angle that they're not getting paid. But in a lot of these essential functions, they have to keep people on the job, but they're still not paying them. 
So, yeah, I would expect after, you know, several weeks, uh, especially over Christmas that, you know, they're going to have people not getting paid. Yeah. Uh, people hit a limit. Uh, isn't, oh God, which group was actually suing the government over this? I believe it's uh, the FBI. The FBI Agents Association or something has been yeah. very vocal in the fact that they are now no longer getting paid. They had, I guess, a lot right. of money left over. <laughs> here. Uh, well, the group that yeah, was, let's see here, American Federation of Government Employees, so AFGE, has actually filed a lawsuit to force the government to discharge payment, but it has to be appropriated first. So... This is just a nightmare because you know to pull back out and kind of look at this from thirty thousand feet. Trump doesn't give a shit. Yeah, he really doesn't. Uh, he said most of these people are Democrats. Yeah, he's comfortable. He, he said he's comfortable going months or years with a shutdown, like you said. And which, by the way, if my average experience with a TSA employee uh, and their fucking justice boner at getting able to feel up brown people uh, i don't believe that they're mostly democrats yeah <laughs> well i mean they're they're the people that are still being forced to work but yeah a lot of the people that are furloughed i mean the, the big chunk of the you know federal uh, government employees are people who live in dc uh, a lot of people the federal workforce force People of color, women of color, especially. Uh, yeah, I mean, these are the people that you know Trump wants to stick it to anyway. So, yeah, he he's happy doing this, uh, which is while holding them without pay, he canceled their raise for this year while giving an that even larger too. raise to his own cabinet. Just kicking and kicking and kicking at you know the regular frontline working people of the federal government. And it's what he wants. It's what a good chunk of his base wants. And the only way out of it is going to be either, I think it's either he uh, doesn't sign anything, he gives up, or they pass something with a veto-proof majority. But where do you get that many Republicans to do that? I mean, they just did it like two weeks ago. The spending well, was bill with no no wall money passed the Senate right. unanimously. Not a single senator voted against it. That was before Ann Coulter went, went on TV and made fun of his dick. And now, now he has to show what a manly guy he is. You know, but before, and so he came in and you know, then he drew his line in the sand and said, yeah, House, pass me a bill that, uh, you know, lame duck House, pass me a bill that gives me a wall. And that's my new requirement. It has to be a wall. So they've either got to go around him or he's got to back down. It has to be wall. It has to be wall. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it's just appalling. Uh, the FBI Agents Association, which I mentioned previously, is not actually suing, but they are trying to get more pay and some tax breaks from right. the Congress over the whole thing. I just went ahead and yeah. that up. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, FBI agents also working without pay right now. Well, I mean, for, for me, the TSA is, like, the really big test for me. Like, Trump has politicized, you know, as Dan's kind of mentioned, the demographics of much of our, like, federal staff force that's furloughed. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, the TSA is not that group. Right. FBI agents are not that group. Correct. No, right. Yeah. Trump has already politicized the FBI to a degree by which it is now a partisan issue whether or not you support the FBI's existence. So, but the TSA is is his basis thing. You know that was man. That's nine eleven and that's security. Like that was wall before we had wall. Um, <laughs> that was the first wall. <laughs> And so it's a really interesting test for me to see whether or not his base will stick with their own people, will, will maintain their, their support of in-grouping and stand with the TSA, who seem to, I mean, I'm sure people are going to start quitting next week, maybe the week after. I can't imagine people are going to hold on after a month yeah. with no hope in sight. Those aren't high-paying jobs. Like, if I hadn't been paid okay. for the last four weeks, I'd be out of a job. 
Like, I mean, I'd be out of a house. Well, I wouldn't be yeah, able to, exactly. to have like, a, an apartment. Yeah. I'm sure that on week two right now, people are already having that debate. Like, okay, do you, like, there's no fucking way I'm just going to keep coming into work and not getting paid at a shitty job. Like, right. hell no. But well, and the other at the same get... time, like, the base isn't inclined to support labor strikes. Like, they don't <laughs> support union activity. Like, they're, I mean, you know, at least seeing my family go through this and get progressively more conservative over the years. Like, they're very um, Ayn Randian, despite not reading Rand at all. Like, <laughs> it's very, very hyper-individualistic. Like, my stepdad's part of a union through the state, but he hates the union. His family has always gone out of their way to shit-talk the union. Um, they're very, very individualistic. So, like, my gut is to say, like, yeah, they, they are against strikes. And then even a TSA strike wouldn't go well, despite the fact that it's a law and order, state security kind of issue. All right. Uh, we don't have that much time, so let's transition to our last topic here real quick. Uh, Chris, tell us about this first uh, couple pieces of legislation that Congress has teed up. Yeah, well, they so the very first thing they did the first day was pass a spending bill with no wall in it, <laughs> which, you know, very firmly makes it immediately the Senate's problem. And Mitch McConnell immediately said, there's no way I'm bringing this kind of bill to a vote. So now Senate Republicans are kind of starting to co-own that with Trump, which may be which may be a chink that you see in the uh, united front if they start getting constituents who are increasingly upset. I think one of the things that works against that is there is no discharge petition in the Senate. If McConnell doesn't want to bring it up. There's nothing on earth that can force him to bring it up. Right. Yeah, everything is unanimous consent, actually. So, yeah, there's no way. Although, what what does it take to replace a majority leader? Uh, a vote? A uh, yeah. Move the... to replace the majority leader. Uh, Moxie. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get to Broadway? <laughs> Practice. <laughs> yes, that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I believe it's just like the American version of a vote of no confidence, basically. Yeah. You, you vote to remove him, and then both sides nominate somebody, and you vote for the nominee. Right. So, I mean, he's not totally beyond persuasion if his... I, I imagine if there was even starting to be whispers of that kind of move that would be something where he would start to think about action. I don't know, man. You have to work with Democrats to get that done. That's not, you're not able to do that with just Republican votes. Anybody who does that is going to be branded, uh, you know, a turncoat. A red. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I will still nurture this fantasy, but <laughs> <laughs> the other thing they did was pass um, what they've dubbed HR1, which is the kind of first big house resolution and is full of measures on voting rights, is full of measures on campaign spending, is full of measures on anti-corruption. Um, so actually a set of things that have a very widespread appeal and of course, the Senate is not going to take it up. Some <laughs> and voting rights stuff in there too. It, but, uh, yeah. It ends felon disenfranchisement after sentence. Right. That uh, I, I made this comment in the Facebook group, and this is exactly the type of bill that really sets us up well for 2020. It gives us a platform to run on, not just you know a platform that might be interesting to wonks or is some document that's set on the back shelf that if you're really into politics you'll pull up and read but something that's actually out there in the zeitgeist something that's being discussed something that you know democrats stand behind and i think that's incredibly helpful going into a presidential election where we don't have an incumbent we, we don't have a standard bearer. having a, a unified platform like that as the first thing out of the fucking gate after getting the lights on i, I just I, I think there's incredible messaging about i think so too and it's all of these measures in this bill too are very broadly popular ones so it just sets up a great we tried to pass this we want to pass this 
The Republican Party is blocking it. Yeah. So give us a Senate majority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we'll we'll briefly close with uh, a couple moments from the new Congress. Uh, were there any that stuck out to you guys in particular? Hmm. Uh, well, let's see here. Uh, the big moments that have been shared and are going around are stuff like, uh, uh, well, all the women. Yeah, Ocasio's kind of dancing yeah. uh, video after right. being pilloried for, uh, well, pilloried is perhaps strong, after being yelled at incoherently by a couple of right-wing trolls about a, right. uh, a video showing her dancing in college, uh, as any good socialist is never supposed to do, as you know. Uh, she released basically uh, a director's edition of her doing the same dance, the same music in her uh, congressional office. It was great. <laughs> yeah, she's obviously violating the rules of the international. There's yeah. no birth at the international. Only borscht. <laughs> we we had the freshman senator uh, get caught on camera yelling out about how they were going to impeach that. I quote, motherfucker, end quote. Um, I, I, Everyone clutched their pearls. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, obviously, Brock, isn't this a testament to how this country's sense of decorum has just totally fallen? I mean, we're just lost as a country or some such. Yeah. So I'm not actually offended by that, but I do think it's probably cost her her reelection. No, not in that district. Are you, are you kidding me? Not in that district. Did no, you that's... look at it? That's John Conyers' former district. No yeah. way. Oh, She's there forever. She she only won because there was a very fractured field that uh, split. What's uh, the best way to put this? Split uh, an ethnic demographic that uh, right. would normally be consolidated behind a candidate uh, uh, that allowed her to, to get in. And I think any sort of anger on that is going to just give rise to a, a primary challenger. Right, but I don't think African Americans are going to unite to eject her over. No, I don't think so at all. Yes. But I think in John Conyers' seat, there's going to be a very large drive for a a candidate who kind of holds that mantle, and she does be. not fit that. And I think giving them any excuse is is not a great idea. I mean, she was basically walking a tightrope in order to to show she should get things done from day one. And I think having distraction mm -hmm. on your first day in Congress is pretty much just telling all these people who are already predisposed to like somebody else a little bit more that maybe they should, you know, go for that feeling. I think 10 or 20 years ago that would have been true, but in a political atmosphere by with which there are at least a half dozen distractions a day, I don't think people are going to remember it in two years. That it is was, also unless she yeah. actually straight up does impeach that motherfucker <laughs> and gloats about it in two years, and then she totally gets reelected. Yeah, so uh, like, yeah, it's a metal. I fucking did it. I, I actually so yeah, I I think both of those things you said are very much true. I do think I perpetually live in a world where it is 1998, um, and and so I that's absolutely totally like. I think you're totally right. Like 10, 15 years ago, like there was little enough happening of the like scandalous nature that the media would really hold on to it but like it's just a tire fire an hour now like right nobody's gonna remember like they'll remember that there was some democrat who said motherfucker but like put every member of congress up on a wall in no way that they'll be like it was that lady I think the fact that the president went on a 15-minute expletive rant with senior Democratic leaders the next day also. He's also yeah, normalizing impeachment. Exactly. He is like, talking about impeachment on, like, the national news. I think that— like, I acted like huge. dropping an F-bomb was a big deal from the POTUS, and I got smacked down real quickly <laughs> on our Facebook page about, like, JJ, Jesus, grow the fuck up. And I was like, oh, no doubt. All right. That's that's fair. Like we we have now entered a, a space by which it is completely acceptable to drop F bombs in national politics, which means I am now an electable official, y'all. Yeah. Uh, I I was gonna say by extension, I think your other thing is true as well. If she delivers, that turns it from being, you know, some 
uppity young girl from our area running her mouth and making us look kind of dumb to being like the woman who got results. I mean, tell me, you would not vote for somebody who had a poster that said, I impeached that motherfucker. <laughs> right. I was like, could you look yeah. me in the eye and be like, I could not vote for that person. I, 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 I do. <laughs> I do definitely see the value in that. I just think, uh, I, I do think she had a bar to cross of not being the dumb kid. And oh, for sure. As, <laughs> as it looked, well, because she has a skeptical voter base. She got in as, as a candidate who only kind of snuck in. Um, she has a skeptical voter base. She doesn't have an unwinnable voter base. There are plenty of, of people who would flock to her side, you know, if she put together things. Uh, and I just think, you know, it makes her look like the dumb kid, uh, which isn't conducive to her situation. But like I said, you're exactly right that too much shit happens. Uh, people may not remember this. And also, if she gets results, she flipped that on her on its fucking head. And she wasn't the mouthy freshman. She was uh, announcing a fucking challenge to the world and then getting shit done. Issuing a statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there is room for that. Um, and I, I guess we're going to call it here because we're running about seven minutes late. We already did the local stuff at the top of the hour. All right. All right. Thanks for joining me, guys. See you all, all right. next week. Have a Have good one. Bye.